So what we're looking at is beyond awareness. The next step would be to look at your mindset. Okay. So what are your thoughts around what's going on with you? Mm -hmm. So what about that? You know, it needs to be challenged. And that's your leash, right? You know, challenging the leash. And then the next step is self-empowerment. Now that you know, okay, what it is that you want, you it's important for you to empower yourself. Yes. To be able to take that next step. The next step, which would be the fourth step, would be taking action based upon the prior steps. And finally, what that outcome will be for you. And hopefully you envision that outcome as something very positive as you move out of being stuck. What's, what's awaiting you? Because I think a lot of what keeps people stuck is that they don't have a clear image of what's awaiting them, or they've created a negative scenario of, well, at least I know what I'm dealing with now. Maybe if I take these steps, it'll be worse than it is now. And that's a possibility. Absolutely. Then you go back to your mindset. You know, what is your mindset around this? Is it positive or negative? And how can you turn that around? I know it was for me. Welcome to today's episode of Unleash Thyself. I am your host, Constantine Morun, and today's guest is David Petrovay. David has worked in the field of career counseling and coaching for over 20 years. Prior to that, he spent 34 years working in schools for the blind across the USA. He has published three books on topics including changes in employment and journaling for inspiration and transformation. He is a firm believer that life is what we make it, and he has great stories to prove it. So, prepare yourself for an unforgettable conversation that should to leave a lasting impression. Welcome back to Unleash Thyself, the podcast that inspires and empowers you to unleash your full potential. I am thrilled to welcome David Petrovay to the show. David, we can't wait to hear more about your experiences and the insights that have led you to where you are today and your unleashed moment, the moment you knew you are on your own path to becoming the best version of yourself. David, it's such a pleasure to have you with us. Well, it is a pleasure to be here, Constantine, and I look forward to sharing my journey with your listeners. So where would you like to start with your journey, David? <laughs> You know, what did they say in The Sound of Music? Let's start at the very beginning. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's okay. go. So, you know, I was thinking about the title of your podcast, you know, Unleash Thyself. Well, that would assume that someone was leashed before they were unleashed or even considering being unleashed. So maybe the best place to start is with the leashed part of me. And then what led to a decision, an epiphany, to become unleashed, to really experience the full potential that life has to offer. I love that, David, and I love the way you approach it. So let's let's dive in. Okay. So um, humble beginnings. I was born in 1948, so you can do the math on that. And um, my parents, I was thinking about our background. And I would have liked to have considered us middle class. But in reality, after taking a class in sociology, 
I realized we weren't in that category. We were more upper lower class. My father was a mail carrier for all of his career. And my mother was a stay at home mom because back in the forties and fifties, that was pretty much a traditional family. Yeah. The working father, the stay at home mom. And then of course her job was to raise the children. And there were four of us. And again, pretty, you know, if, if I looked at the home that I was born into in terms of the physical home, um, it was nothing to write home on about. It was, you know, the basic structure that provided for our basic needs. But, you know, the interesting thing, interesting thing is, Constantine, it's with that's all we know, that's all we know. It wasn't like, oh, we don't uh, live in a lifestyle similar to, let's say, the Vanderbilts or someone like that. It was, it was the home that we grew up in. And I learned to be very accepting of what was. One of my early leashings was to never question and don't make waves. So that moved from the household I lived in to the schooling that I received. And I went to a parochial school for 12 years, which was pretty much in line in alignment with what was the expectations were for my parents. In fact, they were told that if they didn't send their child to a parochial school, that they would go to hell. Well, that, okay. was, that was the belief back then. And so they obviously didn't want to go to hell. So off we went to 12 years of that training. And pretty much, you know, everything that is natural for a child. Um, what I'm learning is it's natural to express yourself. But what's one of the first things that you learn in school? Do not talk. In fact, my first day in elementary school, um, I still remember it like it was yesterday. So we're talking about like 1953. Okay. So we're talking what, 70 years ago. Yeah, just about. And that I can remember it like it was yesterday where I sat down in my assigned seat and turned around to the other student behind me and said, hi, my name's David. What's yours? And immediately the nun, okay, came over to where I was sitting and said, we don't talk unless we're given permission. So you go in the corner for X amount of time. And I remember sitting in the corner until I was allowed to return to my seat. And so the message there was, that's it. You don't say anything unless you're told that you can do that. And I cannot tell you how many times I had to write on the board, I must not talk because it never really stopped me. And all my life, I've been a talker, even though, you know, the messages were, no, do not talk unless you're given permission. And so above where I'm sitting right now, I have a post-it that says, I have a voice and I help others find theirs. And so that it was part of the leashing that took place. And that pretty much continued throughout my schooling, probably not until I went to the university. 
that I find that, oh, you did have a right to speak. However, I also learned at that time, you have a right to speak as long as it is congruent with what we think as the teacher. So the basic te- uh, rule was don't challenge. Just do whatever you're told because we know what's best for you. So that was all part of that leashing that I had. And uh, it's taken me years to throw off that mantle of you don't have a voice. You don't deserve to speak. And I think this has been a big part of my journey. Um, So in terms of going to school, I didn't finish up my formal schooling until 2008. Again, do the math on that. And it was continuous. And after I finished school, I had to make a decision about what I would do next. And I'm sure that many of your you know, listeners will identify with this, which, which is, what do I do? And believe it or not, that first decision as to what I would study came from my mother. My mother said to me, I think you should be a marine biologist. Now, I don't know what that was based on, okay? Even though I was, you know, uh, an honor student in school, I thought, well, she's my mother. She knows best. So I started my education at the university level, studying marine biology. And that lasted uh, my first year of school when I received the first and only D in my life, which was in chemistry. And the way it was taught made no sense, even though as a child, I was so gravitated toward the sciences. All of my Christmas presents were uh, microscopes and telescopes and chemistry sets. And I'd spend hours uh, just experimenting and exploring. So I get to the university and, okay, you need to calculate how many moles there are in whatever substance. And I thought, well, that doesn't make any sense to me. What's, how do you apply this? Well, they didn't care about that. The idea was if you make it through these courses, you'll eventually learn how to apply it. So with that D came the first, I think, unleashing, believe it or not, which was, you know, is this something that I really want to do? Obviously, if this is the way that it's the university program is designed, I'm not going to make it. So I made a decision to pursue psychology. And my mother was not happy with that decision. And so as a result of it, I began that journey for the next three years of studying um, psychology, which was very scientifically based. So we actually had what we called rat lab, where we would learn to run rats through a maze. And then we had to be tallying their responses, and then writing it up as a report. So much less about human psychology and more about animal behavior. Because I found out later that the school I attended was behaviorist oriented. Yeah. So I thought, you know, the old idea of Skinner and the rat hitting the bar to get a reward, we were very much brought up with that. And it was very interesting. Uh, One of the classes that I was in for my graduate program I remember sitting in the class, there were maybe 20 students in it, and 
the teacher was, the professor was saying something. And in his content, as students would respond, he would give them a piece of candy. All right. And again, this is very much behaviorist. And guess who was the only one in the room that never received a piece of candy? Mr. David. That's right. That's right. And because I thought, you're not going to manipulate me with a piece of candy. You're going to come up with something a lot better than that to motivate me to get involved. And so what I learned was, again, this was another step toward being unleashed. And they were increments of that. Yeah, I love that, David. And I can't help but notice so many metaphors in what you've experienced in the sense that you can't speak unless you're allowed to. But that expands to much more, right? Because you can't think unless it's in line with what you're being taught or what the conditioning was, right? You can't do X, Y, Z unless it's in line with that. Right. And even though, like you said, you went to the schools in the 50s and 60s, we're seeing a lot of that even now. I mean, there's other parallels to my schooling in Eastern Europe, in Romania, during the communist era, and those in the 80s, and then, of course, 90s later, and very much the same mentality. And I wasn't in a school that was based around the church at all, but it was still the same idea. You don't talk unless you're spoken to or given permission, right? If you do something not, you go right on the board, or you get more homework, or A, B, and C, right? You Anything to get you to fall in line, to follow specific rules without questioning them. So the question I have to myself all the time is, why was it the case? Why do they want robots coming out of schools? Why do they want people following specific rules without questioning coming out of school? And it wasn't until much later in life when it truly dawned on me the why. And it made sense as soon as I put myself in their shoes. And when I say there, I mean, you know, whoever is in charge of a country, of a community, of a group of people. It could be any of the above. And I think that's a great point that you make, Constantine, in terms of why would people be programmed that way? And basically, you know, I talked to a teacher one time and I said, well, they were teaching us how to be little doobies, which, which is how to fit onto an assembly line how to put yourself in a work setting where you were told what to do, you didn't question it, and if you did, you could be written up. You could be considered problematic. And I think that, um, again, it's a society that uses that in order to control the individuals within it. Because God forbid that in this country we had, what, 330 million people who thought for themselves it would be, they would see it as chaos. And so um, it was interesting that the choice that I made after I completed my degree in psychology um, was to go into special ed. Now, again, where did that come from? Well, I never had a desire to be a teacher. I had no problem being a student. But what was happening historically at the time was the Vietnam War. Okay, so there weren't a lot of options for young men leaving college at, you know, 18. Well, it would have been 21, 22. So um, I thought, okay, I received a letter from the School of Education saying that they were offering fellowships in special education. 
So I went and literally interviewed the head of every department in the School of Special Education and thought, I can't do that, can't do that, can't do that. And then they brought up uh, vocational rehab. And I said, so you expect me to, sit, to say to someone who's returning from Vietnam without his limbs to, oh, you'll be fine. I said, no, that doesn't work for me. So the last person that I spoke to worked in the department for the education of the visually impaired. And so he told me about working with blind and visually impaired students and what that looks like. And I said to myself, I could do that. And so that was the decision I made based on I could do that. Now, that's very different from I want to do that. Okay. And people need to distinguish that, what you could do versus what you want to do. And so I remember going and having my physical because I was in that first lottery that they had for the draft. And my birthday came up number 19. So I knew I was going to be called in because on either date, either October 31st and November 2nd, they weren't much better. So I was called for my physical and I was told by the university, the department uh, of education person, um, based on what happens there, you're either in our program or thanks for applying, but you are going to be doing something else for the next several years. So I did get a deferment because I had a knee that kept dislocating. So that pulled me out of that pool of individuals. And so I started my education working, you know, toward teaching the blind and visually impaired. So I did that for 34 years. Yes. And that's a long time in one aspect of your career. Um, I started out as a classroom teacher. And I still remember my first classroom, I had 13 students, blind and visually impaired. The youngest was nine or 10. The oldest were 18. Look at that age range that I was given. It was like I was set up to fail. And I didn't. I made it through the year barely and came back for a second year. And the longer I stayed, the better I became at what I did. And then event. Go ahead. I was going to say, David, that that's fascinating. So I, I picked up two things that I want to follow up on really quick before I let you continue the story. You said that it wasn't necessarily a job you wanted to do from your heart, but more a, a job that you could do. But then you ended up staying in it for thirty-four years, or at least in the same area. Did you grow to love what you were doing, or realize that what you had in your heart aligned now with what you were doing? Well, again, I think part of that was generational, Constantine, because the idea was you would stay in a job long enough to retire. And then when you retired, you would receive a pension that would support the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. What I, and that was a part of it. And also it was the idea that the longer I stayed in it, the more I loved working with the students. Yeah, and it really became about them and my relationship to them. And I'll tell you a little more about that later on in our story. 
because that's continued into the present. But um, I did that, as I said, as a classroom teacher. And then I moved on and earned a second master's degree in counseling and guidance. And so then I was given an opportunity to put together a program for students with who were blind and visually impaired uh, in terms of their futures. What would they do after they left the school? Because I remember learning in school that there was a high degree of either unemployment or underemployment among the blind. And that number never changed. So it was a question of what could I do to help turn that around? And uh, so I put together a program that I ran for eight years. And it was recognized, uh, at least across the state, if not further, in terms of the value that it had for the students. And it was all hands-on. So none of it was me standing in front of the class and just lecturing them. It's like, okay, you're going to learn about, let's say, you're going to learn about what a florist does. So what did I do? I brought in a florist who brought in all kinds of flowers and the students actually put together arrangements that could be sold. They were that quality. And what surprised me was the kids who were the more jockish types, they really got into it because they took what they made and gave it to their girlfriends. And so it was, you know, an opportunity for them to test the waters as to what they might be interested in pursuing. Of course, I never had that opportunity growing up. Yeah, and it's the, I mean, that's an opportunity that most people don't have, right? To have a hands-on experience in school to be able to tell, you know what? I like this, but I don't like that. And I don't like that, but I also like that part. And most of us, and I'm thinking back at my schooling and the people around me, younger, older, and that's still very rare to this day. Right. And so I was learning how to unleash them. Yeah, so beautiful. Yeah. And it's empowering, right? Because you looked at how you grew up and the challenges you've had, challenges to the school, learning, growing. And then you said, okay, how can I change that to make their lives better? And this is a group of people that, like you said, are already having big struggles and they're underemployed significantly in the market. Yes. So I want to take it back to uh, what the people above me wanted to do to apply that leash again. Oh, yes. So uh, my, why, when I was at my first school, this was in Pennsylvania, um, we were studying volcanoes. Okay. So I had my students build a model vaca- a volcano. And what we were planning to do was to add chemicals to the the mouth of the volcano and light it to give that whole experience of what that would be like. Well, my students thought it was such a great idea. They invited other classes to observe this. So imagine me having a class full of students and teachers. And I didn't mention the fact that my classroom was directly under the office of the superintendent, okay? (laughs) And I didn't realize how um, flimsy the floors were in between. So there we were, 
uh, probably about 40, 50 people in the room. We light the volcano and everyone starts to scream. Not that they were afraid. They, it was like, oh, this is like the 4th of July. And what happened? And it created the smoke and everything else. Well, the smoke went through the floor to the superintendent's office. He hears the screaming and thinks that the school is on fire. <laughs> Needless to say, I was admonished afterwards to never do that again. Even though there, there was no focus on the learning experience. Just, you know, what it might have meant. And of course, all that had been taken into consideration. There was nothing even close to what would catch fire. And then the other one was when I was at another school in another state, uh, my students just loved what they were doing. And so I wanted to make learning fun for them. And again, we get back to there's laughter. The kids are just enjoying so much of what they're doing. The director, who is across the hall, comes over and says, there's too much laughter coming out of this room. You need to tone it down. So this, again, here it is years later, the same messages of you need to put your leash back on. Yeah. Exactly. And that's uh, that's heartbreaking, right? But it sounds like you would be the type of teacher I would have liked to have in school to give people an opportunity to feel inspired and also empowered that they can do anything and still be successful. Right. And it's very interesting because uh, we would do activities with students who were in the public school and were cited. And they would ask me, how could I get into your classroom? How could I be one of your students? I said, well, unfortunately, you can't be able to see in order to qualify. But what I was getting from them was this was infectious. That, you know, this type of learning is not that difficult, but obviously very few people do it. And it always, I don't know, mystified me, I guess is the word, because I remember having the chancellor from the University of Arizona visit my classroom. And they always picked my classroom as the place for dignitaries to visit. And he said to me, do you know what you're doing in here? I said, well, it's the same as what any other teacher would be doing. He said, oh, no, that's not what I see. And it's a shame because it really didn't take much more effort to put those types of activities together for kids. But, but that did, did require you to think outside the box, right? To not follow the predefined programs and conditions, right, of the past. So I would imagine for most people that's difficult because if you were raised and then taught in schools and beyond to be a certain way, then to deviate from that, well, it's not something that most people would want to do either because they don't know any better or it may look bad on them or they don't want to shake the tree, so to speak, or any of those, a combination of those elements. Right. And it was interesting because after I did that work for eight years, um, I was tapped on to be a, what would typically be referred to as a vice principal. Mm -hmm. So I supervised staff, teachers mostly, and I um, would go into their classrooms and give them feedback. 
as positive as could be. Because I thought that's how you grow people. Don't point out what they're doing wrong. Point out what they're doing right. And I remember that uh, one of the things that we had to do was to prepare uh, a legal document that was required uh, for special education services. And the teachers would submit their drafts of what they were going to cover with the, the student meeting that year. And so what happened was they were returned with yellow stickies all over them. And here's what you need to do to strengthen this. Well, of course, it was met with resistance until later on, the Department of Education in Arizona said, if you want to see really well-written documents, you need to go to this school because we've never seen better. So all of a sudden, there was this sense of pride within them. And it was just their willingness to be open to doing things differently. Yes. And I think that's part of the unleashing, Constantine, is being open. Absolutely. And, and so, I mean, being open-minded allows you to explore so many ideas that otherwise you would refuse to even see or acknowledge, right? And awareness in general, in anything you do in life, awareness is half the battle. Because if you're aware of something, you can now tackle it. You can now face it head on and choose if you want to do something about it or not. And taking responsibility for the choice you make. I think too many times we make a decision and then we blame the results on someone else or something else. It's like, well, if, if you're going to do it, then take the responsibility that goes along with it. And let me ask you this. That's actually something that I've been throwing around in my mind with a lot. When in our life do we learn to start blaming other people instead of taking responsibility? And for me, I keep thinking back to my childhood growing up. And I see it two ways. Of course, the schooling system, the playground, but it also comes from your immediate circle, right? Because if you see, let's say, a relative playing the blame game with someone else in the family, you pick up on that really quick. But it's a very common situation we see in society, even to this day, where people don't take responsibility because it's so easy to blame someone else, not because they want to be mean, but because that's what they know and what that's what social media shows us. That's what the news shows us. And that's what we grew up with. And boy, that makes perfect sense because I still remember the day. Uh, this was the first year of teaching when I introduced my class to my mother. And what she, she referred to me as her little boy and said, now, don't you disobey my little boy? And they thought it was hilarious. But the other thing she told me was, and again, there's that leashing, right? Uh, the other thing she told me aside from that was, don't ever admit that you're wrong. And that was direct, okay? So I'm sure that came from what she had learned. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, of course, times were tougher in those years. And that's something I resonated with deeply growing up where I did. And it's the idea that mistakes are punished. Mistakes are not there to learn from. And unfortunately, society still to a large degree views mistakes or failings or fallings as things to punish or look down upon instead of opportunities for growth. 
And that's interesting that you would bring that up because so much of what happens is punishable. So uh, what do you want to do? You want to avoid that, right? And when I was in school, and it's no longer, I think, even permitted, uh, we were paddled. Yeah. Yes. And I still remember being in the fourth grade and the nun uh, would paddle us if we got below a certain grade on a test. Oh, no shame. Okay. And she had no trouble with boys or girls. And it was, to me, them taking out their frustrations that were, I think, misdirected. Absolutely. And again, like you said earlier, what they knew and what they were thought. And if you're not going to challenge the score, if you don't want to shade the tree, you're going to follow because you're part of a, an organization, right? You're part of a doctrine, maybe. And you have to follow sweet, right? And follow, follow along as much as you can. And what's interesting is that you had that experience in the 50s and beyond. I had a similar experience growing up in, I guess, in the 80s, the 90s. Sure, the physical attributions were diminished or removed, but you still have people being put in a corner, for example, or having to write on the on the blackboard or in the notebook a hundred times, I will not do this or I will do this, right? Like, again, things that condition you to follow rules or follow paths that you don't necessarily agree with. And I'm not saying that as kids, we all know the answer, but if all we are told and shown is that we can do what we want, we can do what we feel in our heart, and we don't even have the opportunity to, to try different things out, then of course we're going to have to fall in line because we don't want to displease anyone. We want to stay away from punishment. And our brain, our ego, is really good at protecting us, right? Because that's why we've learned all those things to stay out of trouble. Right. And then we go into autopilot and then it's game over. Right. And, uh, you know, I always explain to people that the ego is really all about self-protection. Now, it doesn't always do it effectively as we get older, but it started at a very early age and was there for a reason. Because I've been in situations where people say, well, you need to kill off your ego. I said, why would you want to kill off something that protects you? You want to acknowledge that it's present and deal with it accordingly. Yes. Yeah. And and I was going to say, I mean, it's almost like your ego works with the tools it has available and the ones it learned in your childhood. So it's just a matter of re-equipping it with different tools that are more appropriate for the person you want to be. Right. And the question becomes, Constantine, where do you get those tools? That's the hard part. Because when I talk to people who grew up in similar situations, we said we had wrote, we had no roadmap for how to get through life. We had to figure it out on our own. And I had a, an incident in my childhood w- that was actually part of an, a class action suit that's going on right now, even though it occurred 60 years ago, where when it came time to talk to my parents, and by the way, they came to me. I didn't go to them. Why? You're not supposed to talk about certain things. You keep them inside. So that was the ego protecting me. But I still remember the day that I met with my father and he shared that he knew what had happened and told me, here we go again with the leash. 
you're to say nothing about this. And 60 years later, here it is as a class action suit where 82,000 other people, young men, okay, were also told, say nothing. And now it's come to light and we're now being given a voice. So this is how our society works. And, you know, it's our duty, I think, to look at that and say, is this healthy? Is staying in this mode really healthy for us? Yeah. And I mean, the answer is pretty obvious for those that want to to look at the details and, and be aware of the situation. And you mentioned the blueprint uh, or the lack of one in your case. And I keep thinking to parallels in today's day and age. It almost feels like we have too many blueprints and many of them are very misleading. I'm talking about social media blueprints, right? Media blueprints, anything that directs our life in a certain direction and we don't stop to question it. And then all of a sudden we end up in situations where we hate each other because of who we like, we vote for, what color our skin is, what we eat, right? Who we hang out with. It's because of these blueprints, in my opinion, at least, mm-hmm. that keep us on such a narrow path without allowing us to see all the options available. So it's in a way very similar to what you and I had to go through in various decades, but at the same time, very different because it's just a different mechanism of delivering the same outcome. Right. And wouldn't it have been wonderful if in our education, well, both starting with the home and into our schooling, that they would have provided us with those tools. Yeah, absolutely. And, And one of those tools is critical thinking. And it's very interesting in terms of how that is not introduced in the schools. We don't learn how to question because that would mean that we'd have, to, we'd have to open up dialogues. And what would happen if we opened up dialogues? Well, we might learn about the other side and how they think. And we might find out that we're more alike than we are different. And remember, that difference is what keeps us in, keeps others controlling us. Exactly. Yeah. No, and I love the way you put that because imagine if your classroom was instead of one David, 20 Davids asking the questions, but what would happen then? That's right. And but- then multiply that with every classroom, and all of a sudden things have to change. Either more conversation, but old ways of thinking, old ways of doing things will have to change and fall apart because now we're challenging them. And if they're not logical, if they don't make any sense, if they don't follow what's in your heart, then they will fall apart. That's right. That's right. And that is the greatest fear of losing control. And it's done on an individual level and on a societal level. So it's seen as this is the way that we ensure that a society runs properly. But someone else gets to define what properly means. Of course. Yes, of course. And so, you know, in terms of the journey, um, after 34 years, I decided that I was not going to do that anymore for a number of reasons. And I thought 34 years is a lot of years to dedicate to doing one type of work. 
And so then I had to make a decision about what would I do next? And I will tell you, Constantine, that was, I was clear on what I wanted to do next, but I had no idea how to get there. Just like I didn't have any idea how to choose that first piece of my career. So I learned, I used what I had learned and talked to a number of people about whether or not doing career counseling and career coaching would be a good match for me. And mm -hmm. as a result of that, um, I made a decision to go into the line of work that I do now, which is working with people. And you brought up a, a good point about, you know, not being sure about what to do next. Um, I'm co-authoring a book now. And we just came up with a title. So this is a title that may stick or may not stick. But it was having to deal with how do you handle being stuck? Okay. And what I realized in talking with her today was every client who comes to me comes with the same issue. All the thousands that I've worked with, they're stuck, right? They're stuck and they're not quite sure what the next steps would be. So we were coming up with a title for what it, the book would be. And I'll tell you what, it started out a little too academic. And being stuck is not about an academic approach. So the latest title we came up with was, I'm stuck and it stinks. <laughs> yeah, catchy too. Yes. That's awesome. And I said, it needs to have an emotional piece to it because who likes to be stuck? And it begins, you know, moving out of it was a word that you used earlier, awareness. First of all, you need to be aware that you're stuck mm -hmm. and how that feels. And then we move them through four more steps to get beyond that. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, so let me ask you this. When, you, when we're saying stuck, right, you mentioned thousands of people coming, boiling down to being stuck and wanting a change. And I would imagine being stuck looks very different from one person to the, next, to the next. However, once you boil it all down, it's pretty much the same thing. I'm not doing what is in my heart. I'm not progressing fast enough, I would imagine. I'm not enjoying. I'm not happy. And I wonder if that's what you're seeing as well, because in my line of work, I work with a lot of people from various industries, and that's what I'm seeing. And to me, again, it boils down to stuck as well. Yep. But you put it very nicely. It yeah, and, yeah, and whatever it is that you're stuck with, okay, like exactly what you said, it's not bringing me enjoyment. There's, I don't see growth. It can be a variety of reasons for feeling stuck. But ultimately, you're looking at, all right, I, I know that I'm stuck but I don't know what my options are. Mm -hmm. So we tend to stay stuck. Absolutely. I mean, change is scary, right? We just talked about this for the first 40 minutes of this conversation because it boils down to the idea that on an individual level, but also group level, community level, and beyond, change is difficult to accept and then implement. So it makes sense to me in that, in that regard. Let me ask you this, and then we'll go back to the idea of being stuck. In you working with thousands of people over the last couple of decades here doing this work, have you seen any major changes in how organizations and even schools work in terms of how they used to indoctrinate people in the past versus what's happening right now? 
Are they more open-minded? Are you seeing more growth mindset? Or are you seeing a very small shift, not as much as you would like to see? Well, that's interesting that you would bring that up, Constantine, because I was just having this conversation with someone, a client, uh, yesterday who works in a very well-known company. And what we're seeing now is as a result of societal and global changes, um, that companies actually seem to be regressing rather than going forward, at least with the last couple. And I can only go by what clients are telling me who all work in very large organizations. And so this idea of we had the COVID, the pandemic, and so more and more people were working from home. And there was a, you know, a lot that was happening around that. And now that COVID is somewhat on the back burner, even though I know people who are still getting it, okay, yep. their companies are now telling them, you need to return physically to the workplace. Yes. And what it seems to be in terms of the rationale behind it is a fear that their employees are not putting in their time. And I thought, oh, well, that has to do with trust. And what does that say about your trust level with the people you hire? And then it works in both directions. So I was saying, well, it looks like this could be the perfect opportunity for business to look at its current model and saying, what can we take from what we learned from the pandemic in terms of how people work and then incorporate that into the next phase? of what work looks like rather than you all have to start coming back to the workplace. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. And the pandemic, if anything, it opened up the eyes of many people to what work could be like. And I was seeing that regressing, like you mentioned, is definitely difficult for many people to swallow. And we're seeing more, at least in my circle, I'm seeing more and more people standing up to it quitting jobs, moving jobs because of the regression we spoke about in terms of or at least working from home or hybrid work. But what other types of regressions have you noticed from the clients you work with in these large organizations or even the medium to small ones? Well, there seems to be a lot. Uh, what I'm hearing from clients and their experience is they're high performing mm-hmm. and they have the metrics to show it. And they're brought in to their supervisor and told, you're done here without any prior warning. So what it's doing is creating an an emotional atmosphere, almost where people are becoming hypervigilant. And that's not contributing to productivity. No, not at all. And what I tell people, one of the biggest things I learned from my sociology class is that what we are experiencing globally is not unexpected when a, an organization, some entity, is about to experience a big shift in how they exist. So what we're getting is resistance prior to the change because on an unconscious level, probably, these people know that the change is going to happen. And so what do they do? They try to control it 
what we were talking about before. They try to control the outcome. Why? Because it's familiar. Yes. And, and as we move into a new paradigm, what's that going to look like? And I tell that to people, expect that there'll be a new paradigm. We just don't know what it's going to look like. Yeah. And I love the way you phrased that, uh, David. Uh, and it kind of goes back to what you're saying as well about trust. It brings up to light now as the resistance comes in, what's missing in an organization, right? Or what's missing between coworkers or employees and their management teams. And trust is a big one because if they don't trust you that you're going to get your job done, then there's a, a lack of connection between those two groups, which means that you cannot expect employee retention. You cannot expect loyalty. You cannot expect people to go the extra mile because if you don't trust, you can't expect trust in return. Right. And so it takes us back to what we were talking about earlier, Constantine, which is the need for communication, yes. the need to use critical thinking skills, which are not being developed. It would be much easier if we said, okay, this is the situation we're dealing with. Let's apply critical thinking and analyze what's happening and then what the solutions can be. So what happens is we live in the problem and not in the solution. And that's where we're leashed, okay? Right there is Absolutely. living in the problem. And I again, it takes me back to the title of your podcast and just using that as the thread that is can exist throughout our talk today. Absolutely. So, you know, you were talking also about people not liking change. That was me. I hated change. And now I embrace it. I love change. <laughs> you know, it gives a variety, diversity, and it also opens up opportunity. Yes. So uh, for me, the work that I do allows me every day to wake up to a different workplace. I mean, it might look the same physically. I work from home, but today talking with you on this podcast is very different from what I'm going to do tomorrow. So there's no chance to be bored. Exactly. So that's why embracing the change makes it exciting. And um, the other things that I do, and this is one thing that I would suggest to people is that a number of years ago, I read a book and the author suggested that you have 101 wishes in your life to what you want to be, do, or have. So I put that list together. The first about 70 were pretty easy. That last 31, not so easy because you had to think outside the box. Mm. And so I created this set of index cards, each with a different wish on it. And one of the wishes was to stay in an over-the-water bungalow in Tahiti. Okay. Yes. Another one was to visit um, the Louvre in Paris. Okay. Now, once I wrote them, I had to let go of how they were going to happen. So with my trip to, well, the over-the-water bungalow for my 70th birthday, it all worked out that we went to Tahiti and I stayed in the over-the-water bungalow. 
didn't put a lot of thought into how it was going to happen, it happened. Then in terms of going to the Louvre, um, last year, friends that we met when we were on a trip to, in the Baltic said, oh, the wife is having her 65th birthday. We're going to celebrate in Paris. Would you like to join us? So in less than two months, off to Paris. And guess what's on the list? Going to the Louvre. Exactly. And again, it's opening yourself up to possibility. I love that, David. And that's 100% how I see things as well right now. It It wasn't until couple of years ago, maybe it opened up my mind that we create or at least co-create our own reality. So if you always tell ourselves the negative aspects of it or the things we don't want, well, that's all we're going to see. But if we start thinking about how we want to change ourselves, the, the positive things in life, the things we want to achieve in life or even acquire, right? It can be material like a vacation or otherwise. Right. right. Now you can start seeing those things show up in your life because you're more conscious about your goals. Of course, you still have to put in the work. Right. You can't just expect that you put Tahiti on the list and you're going to now sit on the couch for five years and it's going to happen. Right. It, that's not the way it works. Although, who knows? You know, anything's possible, Constantine. But I look at it as, again, opening myself up. And the other piece of it is um, when people talk about their age and being too old. So here I am, I'm in my mid seventies. And yesterday, the person that I'm co-authoring the book with said, you're not going to believe this. I shared what the content of our book is going to be. And she said, we can find sponsors that will take that book and promote it around the world. Now, who would have ever thought, okay, that that would be the outcome? All I wrote on my list was that I wanted to write a certain number of books. I didn't say what the result would be. Yeah. But I thought, and she says, well, what do you think of this? What do you think on coming on about coming on board and doing something like this where we're presenting all over the world? I said, sign me up. I'm in. So, I, you know, it's, again, not giving in to those limiting beliefs. I'm too old. I'm too overweight. I'm too this. I'm too that. They're only going to keep you leashed. Wow. I love that so much, David. And I resonate with it 100%. And it sounds to me that what you're really saying is enjoy the journey, have a destination in mind, but don't focus on the destination and put too many expectations around it. Just enjoy the journey. And there was such a big aha moment for me in my own life, actually fairly recently. And I'm like, wow, that's so deep because now I can just enjoy the journey. Don't have to stress too much about what's going to happen when I get there or how that thing I want is going to look like. Just have an idea where I'm going. Enjoy the journey and don't worry so much about the past other than learning from it. Right. And there was such a mind shift for me. So what was that experience for you that caused you to do that? To So it came to me in one of my meditations. And I, it's meditation is something that I've only recently, you know, as of last year, started to truly 
applied to my own life. And I realized that because we are so conditioned in today's life to always keep busy, that we don't sit with our own thoughts enough. So in the past, I was someone that if, let's say, I wouldn't be talking to you, I would be on my computer playing a game or on my phone texting people or browsing the internet. And I would almost never give myself even one minute of solo time to think. And as I started to give myself more time with my own thoughts, either being in nature when I walk my dogs or even in the shower or in the morning before I get up or get up for the day before I go to bed, all of a sudden I've realized that after doing it for 7, 14, 21 days, I've started to have internal dialogues and starting to question things that otherwise I would have not. And one of these things I was questioning was why am I so worried about an arbitrary point in the future and an outcome and worrying about the many directions that outcome can go into when I haven't even started or barely put anything in motion. I should just set a goal and move back and look, okay, how am I going to make this happen and enjoy every step of the way? And like you said, be open to what comes. And I had this aha moment that I'm like, look back at my life. So I'm going to turn 40 this year. But one of the things I've realized is that Everything I've done in my life, many unknowns, many good and bad things, depending on how you look at them. But in the end, it it was okay. So just coming back and say, you know what? It's going to be okay. You know, if you want this thing, you're going to achieve it. So let's make it happen then. Like, what do we need to put in place to get there? And how can we keep an open mind? And I think that's kind of how I came to the realization. And it wasn't just one thing that led to it. It was many seeds that were planted from conversations like this. And also from a lot of solo work, because until I actually sat with myself and with my own thoughts and did my own self-discovery, I wasn't open or ready to receive this information. Yeah, and it goes back to something that came to mind was, I think the saying says, uh, minds are like parachutes. They don't work unless they're open. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I haven't heard the one before. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. And the other one that I heard, three words that have stuck with me for years. I don't know, you know, it's not based on your religious belief. So you can substitute anything you want for the first word. But it was God wastes nothing. So everything that you've experienced has been there for a reason. It's how you use it. Yes, yes. I love that. Yeah. And- so- In my own life, that's been really looking at every experience experience I've had, and it could be regretting doing something or not doing something, or you could actually be looking and saying, what can I learn from whatever mistake or experience I've gone through? And that's a process I'm still going through to this day, because at times when I'm sitting with myself, for example, I'll have a thought come up, and it's something that's, let's say, embarrassing, or maybe something I'm not so proud of that I've done in the past. And then I'm like, you know what? It came up for a reason. Let's actually look at the lesson that I could glean from it and apply it to my life. And when I started doing that, guess what? Those thoughts that we all have that keep coming back, maybe embarrassing things and stuff, stopped coming back. Because it's almost like they come back to teach us a lesson. And if we're not open to receiving the lesson, they'll come back later and they'll try again and they'll try again until we receive the message. Or we may not and they'll keep coming back. Yep, it's what gets our attention eventually. 
Exactly. As you, as you said, as it comes back, it probably comes back a little more intensely each time just to get our attention. And what you said uh, with, you know, not wasting anything. It's, I also as you know that from a different angle, the idea that, again, if you believe in God, the universe, your higher self, things will be put in your path to align with whatever you believe internally, good or bad, regardless. And now it's up to you to pick up those cues and say, you know what, I'm going to look for this, so now I'm going to see more of this in my life. Like your example with Tahiti or Paris, you aligned yourself a different or with a book or any of the other examples you, you, we, we were talking about. So it's just the idea that things will happen in our life, even if we want them or not. It's up to us to how we react and what choices we make with those experiences. And, you know, I looked through the 101 wishes, Constantine, mm -hmm. and looked for themes. Okay. And that's a great activity because it tells you what you value in life. Mm. And uh, mine is being with people. A lot of them had to do with socializing with others, yeah. helping others, traveling, uh, appreciating the beauty in the world oh, and the spiritual growth. Yes. So, so someone said, well, what happens when you have 101 wishes fulfilled? I said, oh, I never do. As soon as one's fulfilled, it goes into a separate pile and a new one replaces it. So I'll always have 101 wishes. You know what? You just answered the follow-up question I had. Wow, and that's so beautiful to think about. It's just, yeah, you always replenish uh, the pot, so to speak. But the follow-up question I had, which you kind of partially answered, is how, when you look at those 101 wishes, the ones you haven't yet fulfilled from the original list, do you see some that you're like, you know what? At this point in my life, I've grown a certain amount. I don't think I want this anymore. Yes. A number of them have gone into a separate pile of that no, no longer aligns with my vision for life. And in some cases, those wishes were taken away from me if they had to do with, let's say, working with a specific company and that company went out of business or I was going to meet someone famous and that person died. So it's not going to happen, at least in this life. But um, yeah, they, they go off the list. And, you know, I don't look at them, Constantine, in terms of, oh, isn't that terrible? It's a loss. It's like you were saying, it wasn't meant to happen. If it was meant to happen, it would have happened. And uh, that's interesting you say that because that proves further your point of having an open mind and being okay with learning from, let's say, maybe making a mistake and putting a wish down that now you don't align with. And guess what? It wasn't a mistake, really. No. It was just what you thought in the moment, what you felt in the moment, and then you continue to learn and grow because we all do. And all of a sudden, you're like, I don't align with this anymore, either by choice because, like you said, the business went out or because you no longer resonate with whatever you're trying to do. So another example I could think of is, let's say you put down that you want to meet a person mm -hmm. and the person, a person turns out to be someone else than you thought they were. So now you're like, you know what? Not someone I care to meet anymore. And that's happened. And, and I'm surprised, yes. Yeah, and that's the universe saying, 
be careful what you wish for. And it provides us with information that helps us to evaluate whether or not we want to continue having that wish in terms of that stack of cards. And, you know, people say, well, what happens if you pass on and some of them are unfulfilled? Well, if I keep replenishing them, that's going to be a given. Exactly. That's going to happen at some point in time. And, you know, in terms of where you're too old, we were just talking about uh, our trip to Tahiti. And I I think it was on my birthday. um, We did an ATV up a mountain and there were no guardrails. So if you didn't steer it right, you went over a cliff and that was the end of you. Okay. Because you probably fell about a thousand feet. Someone said, you actually did that? I said, yeah, well, did you do it? Well, I wasn't the person driving. There were two of us. And they said, did you close your eyes all the way? I said, why? I would have missed the experience. And so again, it's that you're never too old. Now, there'll be some things that physically we won't be able to achieve. But, you know, in terms of that, you have to let it go. Yeah. But you when know, it comes to learning and growing, like you mentioned, you're absolutely never too old to embark on any journey. And I know you you do speak about how it's never too late to create the life you deserve. And I love that line so much because we all deserve a life that not only we are happy with, but we're also proud to look back upon. And a quote that always comes to mind for me that kind of kickstarted my personal development journey many, many years ago And uh, I don't think it's attributed to anyone specific, but it goes something like this. The definition of hell is waking up on your last day on earth and meeting the person you could have been. Oh. Right? So now it gives me chills when I say chills. Yeah. Yep. Oh, that is powerful. So now I go back to what you were saying about the one on one wishes, and it's all of a sudden, you know what? I mean, what a better way to become the person you want to be and you're meant to be then writing down what you truly want in those moments. And then, like you said, replenishing them and working towards them, because guess what? Who is better equipped to know what you want? That's right. And that, that was another big aha moment for me because I always grew up and um, thought that everyone else has the answers and they would know better as to what they want. And we had a we, the, this conversation already, right? Where you said you did marine biology because of your parents. I did engineering at the beginning because of that's what my parents did. And this happens even in today's age. And there's nothing wrong with that because, again, it's what people that love us know. And that's what they want for us. All they want is for us to be as happy, as well off as possible. And that was, I think that's an important point that you make because uh, when I would ask my mother what she wanted for her children, she simply said she wanted us to be happy. Oh. Okay. But then she had to be able to let go of what happy would look like for each of us. Exactly. And I, I think that was the hard part in parenting was letting go of that. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this though, David, how does one that grows up in a family and in an environment where everyone always defines what happy looks like, how do they change 
that behavior to be like, you know what? Your happiness can be whatever you want. It has nothing to do with me as your parent, your brother, your spouse, or anyone else. Well, I think the important thing there is to look at that as a mirror, Constantine, and ask the person who's saying, you know, what they think happiness should look like for you. Have they really defined what happiness is like for them? Yes. Or, or are they trying to live their happiness through another person? And that often is the case. Because I would question my parents. I said, both of you were intelligent people. And the life that they chose kept them on that leash. Because they talked a little bit about their dreams. But they it was almost as if they were afraid to share what they were. Because it was exactly what you said about the last day, and that was what hell would look like meeting the person you could have been. I think they were so afraid of what the person who could have been would look like and how far away from that they were. Yeah. No, I resonate that strongly. And it kind of goes back to the idea of we all have a choice. We don't realize we have a choice in many moments in life. And I was one of those people. I thought that life happened right? Not necessarily for me, but it just happened. I didn't necessarily have many choices. But what it boiled down for me again in one of my meditative states and in talking to other people, I was challenged to pick any of these moments in life when I thought I didn't have a choice and drill down into it. And once I did that, I can not tell you one time when I didn't have a choice. Sure, the choices could have resulted in different outcomes, maybe some weren't as favorable in that moment, but there was always a choice. And where people get stuck is when they can't see the choices. So that's why we're writing this book. Yeah. To talk about how you do that. So let's talk about it because you mentioned that awareness is the number one step. And I agree with that a hundred percent. You said there's like four other steps that, you know, people can go on beyond that. So what we're looking at is beyond awareness. The next step would be to look at your mindset. Okay. So what are your thoughts around what's going on with you? Mm -hmm. So what about that? You know, it needs to be challenged. And that's your leash, right? You know, challenging the leash. And then the next step is self-empowerment. Now that you know, okay, what it is that you want, you it's important for you to empower yourself. Yes. To be able to take that next step. The next step, which would be the fourth step, would be taking action based upon the prior steps. And finally, what that outcome will be for you. And hopefully you envision that outcome as something very positive as you move out of being stuck what's what's awaiting you because i think a lot of what keeps people stuck is that they don't have a clear image of what's awaiting them or they've created a negative scenario of well at least i know what i'm dealing with now maybe if i take these steps it'll be worse than it is now and that's a possibility absolutely then you go back to your mindset 
know, what is your mindset around this? Is it positive or negative? And how can you turn that around? I know it was for me. Constantine, when people would meet me when I was in my 20s, they would say to me more than once, you're your worst enemy. So that was basically my mindset, right? It was being a victim. And boy, I could seek out situations that reinforced that. And we were talking about that earlier. So I had to step out of that perception of myself through empowerment, making choices that worked for me. I could certainly listen to what other people said, but ultimately it was my decision as to what I would do. And then to be able to live with the consequences. And believe me, I, in my adult life, I've made decisions that I probably would not repeat. And it was because I didn't have the information that I needed. And so that's often what's missing is people don't have information. So I help them gather what that information would be so that they can move forward in a positive way. So those exactly. are the more information you have, the more informed decisions you can make. Right. And like you mentioned, the mindset as well. Yeah. You made some choices in life in the past, but you had a different mindset. You had a different set of information to work with. So, of course, all of us could go back with what we know today and be so much better. And again, better is relative. Better for who? Right. And, and again, you know, it was like you brought up earlier, the idea of it's what it took to get our attention. So probably I needed to have that experience so that I wouldn't repeat it. And in some cases, it was a hard lesson. But remember, those lessons were showing up prior to the one that really hit me, probably in lesser form. But with this one, oh, it definitely was powerful enough to say, you don't need to repeat that again. Exactly. And I would imagine in your case as well, but I can only speak from my experience, some of those lessons didn't really show up until much later in life when you really sat with yourself, in my case, with myself, and digest what had happened and really look at it from a lens that's not biased. Like one where you're looking for someone to blame, for example, right? Or where you're only looking at the negative or the positive side of it. Yeah, and those people that were a part of it, I suppose it would have been easy enough to blame them, but I recognize them as simply being an instrument. Yeah, absolutely. That allowed me to take a good hard look at how I was approaching life. And what it sounds to me, everything you've talked about so far, some amazing messages in there, but it also resonates in a different direction with me with the idea that things are good or bad because of the lens we look at them through. And I had an aha moment recently as well, you know, in all my meditation states where I realized that things are just things. Like they just are. They're not good nor bad. They just are. We as human beings put a lens on it, right? And say, oh, this is bad because it doesn't align with the belief I have or some lesson I've learned a long time ago. But at the same time, that thing that's bad for me could be actually a positive thing for you and many other people. Right. Or it could be 
bad for you in the moment. And then a year from now, as you've learned from it, you say that's that could have been the best thing that ever happened. And I love that what you just said that. And actually it reminds me of uh, my last year. So it was between June and beginning of this year. I, for the first time in my life, I had to fight depression. I didn't realize what was happening in the moment. And of course, in that time, it was miserable. In hindsight, though, like you said, it was one of the best things that could have happened to me because, it, again, it allowed me to see with my own thoughts. It allowed me to learn so many things. Was it hard? Was it tough? Absolutely. Did I do everything right? Absolutely not. I actually did many things that I wasn't supposed to do, like shutting people out and not reaching out. And many of the things they tell you not to do when you feel down. But you can still look at it and say, you know what? There's so many positives in that. Sure, it's a negative, but with so many positives. Yeah, and whoever said the challenges in life were fun? <laughs> I mean, that they're challenges. Yeah. <clears throat> they cause us to question who we are and how we function. Yeah. And that's not always easy. No, definitely not. So, David, tell us a bit more about your book. When do you think you're going to launch it or publish it? Well, probably it will be completed by the end of the year. One of the things that we want to do, Constantine, in order to personalize it mm -hmm. and not making it, make it an academic exercise, is we want to gather stories from people who can tell us about each of these steps. So tell us about awareness. Tell us about mindset. Tell mm -hmm. us about uh, being feeling empowered. Talk about the actions you took. Tell us what your life is like today, having gone through those stages. So we really want to make it, make it anecdotal in I'm terms of, of that. So once we get a lot of the content fleshed out, then we're going to reach out to people to do that. So might be that people in your listening audience may Absolutely. want to reach out and say, hey, I'm putting my hand up. I'd love to be a contributor to the book. So speaking of that, where can people find you and reach out to you? So um, the best way is through my website, which is davidpetrovaycoaching.com. Uh, my email address is davidpetrovay at gmail.com. So those are the two best ways. Um, not so easy with phone because people are all over the world, okay? Yep. Not all, and with time differences, but email, website, and my website also has contact information. And the, we'll put those in the description as well so people can find. And by the way, yeah, with my website, every day I post a an inspirational blog, okay? And it's a lot of what I've learned. And the, the book that goes with it is called Ponderings. And it's a journal that can be ordered off of Amazon. And each day there are, this is a reading, and it's not 365 days. It's 10 topics like gratitude, um, your feelings, things, acceptance. And there are 28 readings within each with a space below for you to write what your thoughts are, because every one of those entries ends with a question. So as to how you can be, how that's being applied or how you're experiencing that in your life today. But they can just go on the, the blog 
and uh, they're posted daily. And I've been doing this since 2010. Yes, that's quite a lot of content for people to go through. Yes. And I had a friend who was um, proofing my book. And she said, well, I figured I'd spend maybe like 15, 20 minutes on it. And she said, after three hours, I had to put it down. She said, everything that I read was so apropos. So um, that's how people can find me, um, how they can learn from what's on the website. And my books are listed with links to how they can order them. So that's that's all there for them. Awesome, David. So, I mean, I've had so much fun having this conversation with you today, and I've learned so much. But before I let you go for the day, is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience that maybe we haven't touched upon or we haven't touched upon enough? I think that, you know, if there was a final message that I'd want to impart to people, it's never too late. Don't ever limit yourself in what the possibilities are. And when you're open and if it's meant to be, it's going to show up for you in the strangest ways. And that's where the excitement of life comes in, not knowing exactly how it's going to show up. And as we're talking, you know, be willing to change direction because there's a reason for it. It's there for you to grow. And I figure the time that I'll stop growing is the time that they, I don't know, put the last nail in the coffin or whatever it is, because I don't plan to stop at this point. And we shouldn't. That's such a beautiful message to end it on, David. Thank you again. It's been a pleasure and an honor to have a chance to talk to you. Likewise, I had an opportunity to get to know you better as a result of this. Thank you so much for being with us today. To find out more amazing content and episodes, please visit UnleashThyself.com or you can find us on social media.